everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. It's episode 59. Today I'm talking about pressure treated woods, talking about wood rot, uh, ways to bleach wood, lighten its color, and finally some lumber dimension talk. More, let's put this another way, things that tick people off about the way lumber is dimensioned or how lumber is labeled in its dimensions. That should be an interesting rant. Uh, first, I do want to say thank you to my patrons over at Patreon. You guys have definitely helped to make this show happen. I've had several uh, several of you join the, the, the cause this week. Thank you so much. If you are interested in sponsoring the show, go to patreon.com slash lumber update. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Enough shilling. Let's get to some feedback. Um, I've had some really good uh, feedback on the last couple of episodes. First, I have a message from Steve about episode 56 when I talked about the varieties of hickory. He says, you answered a question on episode 56 about the different varieties of hickory. I have been wondering about some of the differences myself, so thanks for clearing it all up for me. However, (laughs) there's always a however, right? I don't think you fully answered the question about whether pecan makes a good axe handle. Having used quite a lot of pecan wood myself, allow me to share my experience. Pecan does make a good axe handle, but on two conditions. One, use the sapwood and avoid the heartwood. Pecan heartwood is a bit harder than the sapwood, but also a little bit more brittle. So if you make a tool handle from pecan, it's best to use only the lighter colored sapwood and avoid the darker heartwood. Two, use fast grown stock. Like the oaks, pecan that has grown slowly can be quite a bit weaker than the pecan that has grown quickly. As you know, that's because the pores are close together in slow-grown wood, but in the fast-grown wood, the pores are farther apart. I learned all this by trial and error, mostly error, in re-handling my own hewing hatchet. In my first attempt, I made both mistakes using fast-grown pecan heartwood, and the handle eventually broke. I remade the handle using fast-grown sapwood, and it has stood up to heavy use ever since. I can't say whether top-quality pecan is quite as good as top-quality hickory, but it certainly has worked well for me, With careful stock selection, it's worth making tool handles from pecan. I've enjoyed every episode of the show and I always learn something new from you. Thanks so much for taking your time to share your knowledge and insights. Steve, thank you for writing in because um, you're right. But this is one of those moments where, yeah, I probably could have said that, but you know what? Listeners of the show already know this. Part one, use the sapwood, avoid heartwood because pecan heartwood is a bit harder than the sapwood and a little bit more brittle. My friend, that's not just pecan, that's all hardwoods. Heartwood is always going to be a little bit harder and therefore a bit more brittle than the sapwood. It's because of what heartwood is. It is the dead part of the tree. It's where all that tree waste has been pushed towards the middle of the tree via the medullary rays and deposited there. The reason heartwood is darker is because of those deposits. We've talked about this in in past episodes. So that's not just pecan, that's not just hickory, it's not oak, it's not maple. They all do it, folks. So the heartwood is always going to be a bit harder. Some respects you can say it's a bit more stable. And anytime something becomes harder, there's a greater chance of it being more brittle. So yeah, you could say that about pecan, but I could say that about any hardwood used fast grown stock. I'm glad you brought this up because this is a misconception a lot of people have. We often hear about the wonders of old growth hardwoods, 
Old growth means really, really tight growth rings. These are trees that grew in an old growth forest, don't get enough sunlight, don't get enough nutrients to grow super fast. They are essentially stunted due to competition for sunlight and nutrients with all the other trees in that forest. So as Steve said, those growth rings are closer together. Well, hardwoods are porous in nature, whether they're ring porous, semi-ring porous, or diffuse porous, they have pores, meaning they have dead air. And as those pores are stacked closer and closer together, you've got more dead air. I like to think of them as perforations. Anytime you split a board, um, especially a ring pores, would that perforated line, it reminds me of that old printer paper that you had to tear the edges off of and it was all attached in one long sheet. Yeah, I'm dating myself for that. But that's what I think of those pores. It's a weak spot that allows that wood to be riven. It also is dead air decreasing the density of it. So a fast grown wood is gonna have those wider space growth rings, which means between the pores, again, especially in ring porous wood where you've got those pores all nicely lined up, all that area in between those pores is denser, harder stock. And when you've got a wider section of that denser, harder material, it's going to be uh, stronger when it comes to bending. It's going to have a little bit more oomph to it when it comes to bend it. He said this in his uh, example that he made the examples in both ways by using both heartwood and fast grown stock. And I think he meant to say slow grown stock because again, slower grown or old growth hardwoods will actually be weaker than faster grown hardwoods. So, and, and you know, I'm not going to pull out the numbers and look at the MOR and MOE and the differences. And I'm sure somebody has done a study on that and the engineering values will be different that will back up what I'm saying that that old growth or slow grown hardwood is weaker, but it's not substantially. It's not like, oh my God, I've got to worry. I've got those old growth material. I can't use it for structural stuff. It's not that bad folks, but it is something you have to think about. And here's the rub. Softwoods, they are the opposite. Fast grown softwoods will actually be weaker, somewhat spongier, less density than a slow grown softwood. So if you look at something like Alaskan yellow cedar, it's prized for its strength and it grows very, very slowly. Very, very tight growth rings, for lack of a better term. Closely packed tracheids, if you will. Very, very structurally strong tree. Douglas fir would be very much the same way. Whereas Western Red Cedar that grows like a weed, very low density, very fast growing tree, it's not nearly as strong as the others. Southern Yellow Pine grows a lot slower than Northeastern White Pine and therefore Southern Yellow is going to be a stronger tree. So hardwoods, they are weaker the slower they grow. Softwoods are weaker the faster they grow. Fun fact that you can now share at a cocktail party. Thanks for the feedback, Steve. Always fun to uh, to hear back from uh, feedback from certain episodes. The next one is from Jim uh, regarding uh, episode 57. He says, thanks for asking or answering my question about cherry on episode 57. Um, Jim had asked whether or not what he could do to unify the color between his cherry plywood and his cherry solid one on a piece he was building. I basically said, look, you're dealing with a thickness issue. You're also dealing with uh, um, fresh, freshly milled solid wood that's going to be a lot lighter versus uh, an aged and oxidized plywood veneer, which is going to be darker and they will eventually uh, mellow out and, and come into a closer match. Well, Jim says, following up, after aging for eight months, both the plywood and the solids in the project now match in color. The only way to tell the difference is in the grain. No stain used, just a couple of coats of Deft uh, 107 water-based acrylic, which is much better than water or oil-based polyurethane, in my opinion. Has no odor, dries in 30 minutes, to sanding and recoating hardness. So we've got a little, uh, 
little review for, for Def DFT 107 thrown in there at the same time. Thanks for that, Jim. I'm glad to hear that uh, uh, my answer was actually correct in this instance. Sam has great feedback on episode 54. That was called, How Do We Stretch Our Lumber Further? Sam says, um, as a furniture maker working out of a garage shop, I don't have a ton of room to store material. Ever since I started my business, efficiency in material use is something that I've tried to be keenly aware of. I spend a fair amount of time on parts design and layout, which is aided greatly by doing all of my design work digitally. I think that is also very valuable and that the process to keep the grade specifications, or let me rephrase that, the process allows me to keep the grade specifications at the forefront of my mind. By designing parts with a grade spec in mind, I can significantly minimize waste. For example, it's easy enough to find eight inch wide four quarter cherry. Uh, if I design some pieces to be about four inches wide instead of five, I can reduce the, num reduce the number of raw boards I need to buy. That being said, I found there are some diminishing returns on this effect. Uh, if you remember, this is, I was talking about as well, planning your design around the availability of grade, around the availability of boards in your area. He has an interesting wrinkle to this though. He says, I could spend an unnecessary amount of time trying to chase myself down to 1% waste, but the time involved would actually cost more than actually building the piece. My overage target is generally around 15% now, and I end up with about 10% waste from the raw board footage purchased. So rather than um, <clears throat> hyperanalyzing my process to reduce my waste, I think it's beneficial to look at what we do with our quote waste before we actually consider it to be waste. Just like beginning woodworkers can potentially get off cuts from a cabinet shop, so too can furniture makers find places for their waste to go. Maybe there's a local pen turner that can make 50 pens from a few pieces of an eight quarter off cut. Or there's a Boy Scout troop that wants to do some knife carving exercises. I myself have, friend, have a friend that smokes meat. He's going to burn the wood anyway. I might as well donate what I won't use so that he can minimize the amount of wood he needs to source separately. I think that the thing to take away from this is that we can minimize our quote unquote waste indirectly by minimizing the amount of material that needs to be produced in the first place. Sam, this is awesome. This is, this is fantastic. This was a point that I didn't touch on at all. And honestly, a point that I didn't think about at all, which is quite selfish of me now that I think about it. Certainly we can maximize, or shall I say, minimize the amount of waste, maximize our efficiency. So we have left those off cuts left over. But what if we also think in terms of, hey, if I cut this board a little bit narrow, I'll have a wider board left over that could be of more use to a hobbyist woodworker. I could take it to my local woodworking club. I could take it to my Boy Scout troop, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many things that wood could be used for that it might be waste to you, but it could be treasure to someone else. Pin makers is a good example. Cutting board makers, there's another example right there. There's a bunch of people out there. Maybe they do figurine carving or something like that. Uh, we had a guy who wrote in a while ago asking about um, crankbait material. Well, tiny little offcuts could make pens, but it also could make fishing lures. So this is an excellent, excellent thought. Sam, thank you so much for sharing that because that that's just awesome. You wanna think about decreasing your waste, think about sharing your waste with others. Very cool. So. Because of that great feedback from Sam, I'm gonna answer one of his questions too. <laughs> he says, I'm gonna be working on a walnut dining table that's over 130 years old. It was built in the 1880s. My client has had it in her family for four generations and the wood has a lovely golden brown color from age. 
One of the things this client wants me to do is make a few extra leaves for the table. How should I go about lightening the new walnut to at least try to match the color of the rest of the table? It doesn't have to be perfect and I'll definitely be making test pieces, but I'm having a very hard time finding any wisdom or guidance on this. It seems like a lot of woodworkers aren't even aware that walnut lightens as it ages, which has made it even harder to get advice. Great question, Sam. You are right. Walnut does lighten as it ages, which is kind of different. A lot of wood will darken, but I also think that's kind of a misnomer. Darken and lighten, it changes color. It mellows. Walnut or let's, let's talk about cherry. Cherry is kind of a vibrant pink. And yes, it does get turned to a darker brown, but I think what's happening is it's mellowing out and the red is receding and the brown is coming forward more. Walnut, when freshly milled, can have purples and greens and creams. Even if it's steamed walnut, it will have a variety of colors and subtle kind of undertones that add to the overall kind of reddish cast to freshly milled walnut. Walnut isn't so much lightening with age, but it's mellowing out and that brown undertone is allowed to come forward. When you remove those reds and purples and greens, the whole thing appears more golden brown and lighter in color. So I, it's just semantics, I realize that. Dark and lighten, it's, it's perfectly natural for that walnut to change color. Rather than saying it's darkening and lightening, it's certainly changing color and becoming more uniform. The less you have those variations in color, the less there are things to detract you and you get more of that base coat of color that's left, which is that lighter kind of golden brown. So the answer here, uh, Sam, is wood bleach. Oxalic acid, also known as wood bleach, is a good solution for you to try. Um, now certainly test pieces, absolutely want to do test pieces, not only test pieces with the wood bleach, but whatever finish you want to choose. So, cause recognizing the finish is going to add some colorant as well. Um, wood bleach, you know, totally undiluted could do crazy things. I've seen walnut bleach to look like maple, um, or actually it looks like butternut, otherwise known as white walnut but you can dilute that oxalic acid, that wood bleach, to get varying effects. You can also apply it much quicker. In other words, wipe it on and wipe it off much quicker and get a much less um, uh, pronounced effect. What the wood bleach is doing is breaking down those chromophores. All of those overlying highlights and, and, and other colors in the wood, it's breaking apart those chromophores and allowing that process of oxidization and sun bleaching to speed up which is what's bringing that base light kind of golden brown color forward because it's removing all the distractions from the surface. So play around with it. Look up wood bleach. You'll find it, um, you know, most woodworking stores are gonna have it, but you can find it at, at uh, uh, Home Depot and Lowe's if you look a little bit closely for it. Um, again, play around with it. Um, off the top of my head, I don't know what you dilute it with. Um, I'm sure if you Google that, you can look that up and exactly what you dilute it with. You know, like you would dilute a, uh, an oil-based finish with something like mineral oil. Uh, you dilute a water-based finish with water. You dilute shellac with alcohol. What is the solution that um, wood bleach is in? I guess it depends upon the type of wood bleach you buy. If someone knows this offhand, please write in and let me know. Um, I did not uh, Google that and look it up before I started recording. So I apologize for that, uh, Sam, but definitely play with different solutions of it, play with different amounts of time that is exposed to the wood, and I think you'll find that you can get um, some pretty cool effects with it. We have a customer that actually bleached Sapili to get like this very cream color look for exterior on a house in California, 
Don't ask me why. They didn't like the red look, but they liked the exterior benefit of Zapili. They wanted that white look. So using oxalic acid in heavy concentration for a long period of time, they removed all the red and they were left with this cream color, almost looking like ash thing that was Zapili. So there's some crazy things you can do with wood bleach. So give it a try, Sam, and uh, let me know how it goes. So let's move uh, into the emails uh, more directly here. Um, I've got a good question from Jim about pressure-treated lumber. He said, in your recent discussion of wood suitable for the outdoors um, and another podcast such as Fine Home Building, pressure-treated southern yellow pine is frequently mentioned. I live in Southern California. I have never seen southern yellow pine, pressure-treated or not, in a local lumberyard or a big box store. I do see pressure-treated Douglas fir and sometimes pressure-treated hemlock fir in local lumberyards and stores. So what's the difference between these two pressure-treated woods from a user standpoint? considering strength, hardness, amount of warping, resistance to decay, etc. So, Jim, pressure-treated lumber, um, I would say for the, the lion's share is southern yellow pine, certainly due to regionality. Southern yellow pine is, go figure, available in the south. I myself don't see southern yellow pine in non-pressure-treated form up here in Maryland. Even though technically I'm south of the Mason-Dixon line, we don't get it because we are northeastern white pine kind of world up here. Our regional material is northeastern white pine. I do, however, see southern yellow pine in my pressure-treated lumber because southern yellow pine is a lot closer to me than Douglas fir is, you know, up in British Columbia and the Pacific Northwest. Whereas you in California, you're getting dug fir because southern yellow pine is a long way away from you. We're talking, you know, the southeast is where most of that stuff is growing. It's a long haul to California, whereas Douglas fir is quite a bit closer. Now, the biggest difference is um, your pressure-treated lumber is going to have those little, like, dents, those little symmetrical cut marks on them. It almost looks like the wood's been perforated. Those incisions are used in Douglas fir to allow the chemicals in the pressure-treated cocktail to penetrate further, to, to more adequately pressure-treat the lumber. Whereas the pressure-treated lumber that I get, southern yellow pine, doesn't have any of those little marks because southern yellow pine is more um, amenable to the pressure treating process, which is the other reason why the lion's share of the pressure treated lumber you will find, despite regionality, is southern yellow pine. It just treats better and easier and quicker than something like Douglas fir. But you have to weigh the cost of transportation and all that fun stuff, and in some instances, Douglas fir or hemlock does make more sense when it's grown like right in your backyard. But that's gonna be the first difference. You're gonna see all those little cut marks put into it and allow that greater absorption. I don't actually know this, I'm just guessing, kind of pulling this out my backside, but um, Douglas fir is, um, it, it's similar to Southern Yellow Pine in the fact that it's quite a bit harder, um, but Douglas fir has very, very high density in its late growth rings. The stripe pattern, that kind of pinkish hue that Douglas fir has is due to that really, really dense late growth material. That's just heavily dense lignin and cellulose. Whereas Southern Yellow Pine, the striated looks you see of southern yellow pine is caused by resin, heavy amounts of sap. And the hardness, the added hardness and stiffness that southern yellow pine has is also due to that sap. So as you heat up and you inject chemicals and a great deal of moisture into southern yellow pine, that resin is going to be more soluble. It's not going to prevent the chemicals from absorbing as deeply, whereas a physical barrier of dense lignin and cellulose that you find in Douglas fir 
is not really going to change no matter how much you heat it up and how much moisture you infuse into it, which is why they have to make those little cuts to get the stuff to absorb kind of below skin deep in Douglas fir. That's the biggest physical difference. Um, you're going to find hardness differences between just the species in general. Um, I think think it's within like 100 psi on the Jenica. I'm trying to remember. I think it's 760 is Southern Alpine and it might be 740 or maybe 840 for Doug Fur. I should know that and I don't. My brain is just, it's filled. It, I don't have any room for stuff. I have to download some things, but there's not a huge difference. The key is you will find slight differences in the technical properties of the material after it's been pressure treated. A lot of studies show that technically it weakens the lumber a little bit, but it's a, it's a pretty negligible amount. Um, the fact of the matter is, is you can look up, like go to something like the wood database or use the wood handbook or any place you can find technical specs of a species. And the technical specs of Douglas fir untreated are going to be very similar to Douglas fir treated. Likewise, southern yellow pine untreated and uh, southern yellow pine treated. There's not a massive change there. So as far as what's the difference, look up hemlock, look up Douglas fir, look up southern yellow pine, and you will see what those technical properties are. And if you don't remember how all that works, go back and listen to episode three, I want to say it is, where I talk about those technical properties and how they can be uh, harnessed to help us understand how a wood will work. Fact of the matter is, is Doug fir and southern yellow pine do both work very similarly. I find southern yellow works a little bit easier than Doug fir because of that resin um, being the toughness element as compared to just plain old dense wood being the toughness element in Douglas fir. Um, the decay amount, that's entirely up to the pressure treated, the, the chemical cocktail that's used. And that hasn't changed a whole lot since they started dumping the arsenic from it uh, several decades ago. The chemical treatment process is, is pretty much the same and it's gonna offer the same amount of rot resistance as long as that chemical cocktail is absorbed evenly, which again is why those little incisions are made in Douglas fir and hemlock material. So yeah, I wouldn't get too caught up in the differences there and the fact that you can't get Southern yellow pine pressure treated, you're getting Douglas fir. The only issue is those little cuts. If you're looking at it, from a surface perspective or an aesthetic perspective, those little incisions on the surface can be kind of annoying. But honestly, pressure treated lumber is so wet to begin with, it's not really an appearance grade material. It's gonna check all the hell um, after a season or two because there's so much moisture. It's gonna move a lot because there's so much moisture. Pressure treated material is not something I would consider for fine furniture or any situation where you have to really be concerned about wood movement in, in terms of joinery. For that matter, joinery in general, a pressure treated material is not something that uh, I would recommend unless you're specifically strengthening it with fasteners or pegs or interlocking joints or something like that, the amount of movement you're going to see as pressure treated material dries out is significant. So yeah, and as it dries, it's going to check like crazy as well, especially those thicker cut materials. So yeah, it's not something I would consider for the finer projects in the first place. Martin has written in about uh, the Emerald Ash Borer. He says, um, my questions concern the death of all, at least the ones I've seen, the ash trees in my area of Connecticut due to the emerald ash borer. There are also a good number of diseased spruce trees, but I wonder how the death of the ash trees will affect the lumber industry since ash is a mainstay of a lot of furniture making. I've been told that the wood from felled trees is still good, but so far I've 
just seen people cut the logs into firewood. Can it be used safely for lumber? Um, all right, Martin, this is, this is a difficult one. Um, my understanding and the entomologists that I've talked to have told me that the emerald ash borer is interested in the sapwood. And this is the case with most of the bugs, because what do we know about sapwood? That's where all the sugars are. That's where all the nutrients in the material and the wood is because the heartwood, as we've said already in this episode and several other episodes, the heartwood is the dead wood. That's the waste material of the tree. So the, the boring insects are really focused and they attack the tree because of the sugars and stuff in the sapwood. That's what kills the tree because that's the lifeblood, literally the, the blood vessels of the tree. And as they start boring through that and, and eating it, the tree's not getting any nutrients, the whole thing dies, leaves fall off and it eventually falls over. So once the tree has been cut down, somebody says, oh, it's infested with EAB, cut the thing down, it takes to a log yard, um, there are bugs in the tree and they're in the, in the sapwood. If there is another food source, once the sapwood has been exhausted, the bugs will move on to another food source. What I've been told, however, is in the absence of another food source, the bugs will then go, okay, fine, let's eat the heartwood. But it takes a fair bit. Like if it's in a log yard with a bunch of other trees, they'll jump to another tree. Or if it's in an area where there are other ash trees, they'll go to those other ash trees. But if you took that log and you dropped it in a desert or you dropped it in a concrete jungle of a city where there were no other trees around it, they very likely will turn to the heartwood. The problem is the emerald ash borer is so pervasive and so damaging that when a tree has been found to have the beetle in it, it's cut down and immediately chipped into mulch right away to try to stop the spread. And rather than taking a wait and see, you know, strip off all the sapwood and wait and see what happens, people are concerned about stopping the spread right then and there. So they will strip that thing right away. Moreover, it's not as easy as you think to just strip away the sapwood to the heartwood. If you happen to have, like you could run a tree through a debarker um, and it will pull off the bark and the cambium, inner and outer cambium layers, but it's not gonna do a very good job of stripping away the sapwood. What you really need is like a lathe, like a veneer peeling machine that's gonna peel that off to get right back to the heartwood. But that's not practical, you know, you're not, there's so many things wrong with that, it's just not gonna work. So it's not quite as easy as you think to just get rid of that sapwood and still focus on the heartwood. You could start to saw that tree into boards and you know throw away the sapwood right away there as well, and there are some mills that are doing that, but it is a particular concern because if that tree has the bug in it, in order to saw it into boards, what do you have to do? You have to bring that log to your sawmill well, what is also at your sawmill? Lots of other logs that could become infected by the EAB or the powder post beetle or any, any of the nasty little buggers in our wood. That's a serious risk to your inventory, your money at your sawmill that a lot of these sawmill owners are not willing to take. Now, if all they do is specialize in ash, and frankly, that's very common these days, the people that are making ash, that's what they do. They saw ash. Um, and they know how to handle it. They know what to do with it. They know how to quickly um, saw out a cant, get that, that um, a cant is a, think of it as just a big square timber. When you round a log off, the largest square piece that comes off of that, that round log is what's known as a cant. They can saw off the sapwood, leaving that heart, all heartwood camp. 
uh, can't and then quickly burn or mulch that sapwood. And there are ways to deal with that. But obviously that adds to the time, that adds to the labor, which adds to the cost in the long run. So as far as what's this gonna do to the lumber industry, yeah, there's still a fair amount of ash that's used in the furniture industry, but honestly, the furniture industry is such a tiny portion of the lumber industry now. Back in the 50s and 60s, it was the industry. That was what the lumber industry was, was feeding. In fact, if you look at NHLA lumber grades, they're pretty much designed around the furniture industry in mind, which is one of the reasons NHLA lumber grades are kind of out of date now. Um, and FAS isn't nearly good enough for what most of the millwork and flooring and molding companies now need and siding companies and things like that. So the furniture industry plays a very small percentage of the overall commercial demand. And while ash is used a fair amount in that, um, it's not really hurting that much to not have as much um, as before because the furniture industry has shrunk substantially in the last couple of decades. Where ash is still used pretty heavily is in the flooring market. But flooring can use number two common material. It can use shorts, it can use narrow, it, it can get away with a lot more. And that's where the ash is going these days. They can cut off that sapwood quickly. They can cut out any, any and all knots and any particularly suspect areas that could be infected with a bug. And what's left over is still very usable for producing flooring. So I'm not gonna say that no one is, is feeling the pinch. It certainly is upsetting. And a lot of people have had to move to other light woods. Fortunately, maple, <laughs> maple's indestructible practically. Nothing can touch that. It's a very, very hardy tree. There's plenty of maple to kind of fill the gap that um, is left by the white wood of ash in the market. So uh, thank you, Martin, for that question. Oh, the other thing I will say is um, there's some very, very strict quarantine rules in place with the emerald ash borer, making it very difficult to actually move ash logs in general. So when you've got to jump through a bunch of hoops, you've got to get a bunch of certifications, phytosanitary certifications and inspections just to move the logs, and that's cutting in your profit margin. Sometimes it's cheaper to just grind the thing up and actually sell it as mulch. Um, so yeah, it's it's unfortunate, but you know, it's one of those things. Here we are in a COVID world right now, and it's like, well, you know, we wait and see if somebody gets infected. No, you put them in quarantine right away because you don't want to risk run the risk of them infecting a bunch of other people, you know, oh, and wear a mask at the same time. So yeah, it's um, it's particularly difficult and it's a gamble that, a, that I, I don't know any sawmill owners that are willing to take. Um, homeowners the same way, um, forestry managers, they don't want to take that risk. If they find a tree in their concession that has emerald ash borer in it, they get rid of that tree and probably five, six trees, all of the, the cedar trees around that, cedar meaning um, not C-E-D-A-R, but C-E-E-D, all the trees within the drip line, they want to get rid of those as well because they are probably also infected. They got to stop that infection right now, quarantine it, lock it off before it infects their entire concession. Moving on, uh, let's see here. Um, Tony has a question about sap and heartwood and rot. He says, overall, everyone says not to use sapwood because it's prone to bugs and rot. My question is, whenever you see a live tree with rot issues, it seems to always be the heartwood and the sapwood seems to be mostly okay. It always perplexes me as to why. Okay, Tony, I have a couple issues here. Um, First, when you're looking at a live tree, how are you seeing the heartwood? Because the heartwood is underneath the sapwood. So the only way you could see the heartwood in a live tree is if somebody had cut a big 
big old chunk out of it, like exposing the interior of the tree, in which case that tree's not going to be alive much longer. <laughs> Same reason they say harvesting burls is bad because it kills the tree. Yeah, you cut off that burl, you just killed that tree, and now you need to fell it because it's going to die. So it's very difficult to see <laughs> the heartwood on a tree. It's like walking up to somebody and saying, wow, your bones don't look too good, you know? How can you see my bones unless I'm standing in front of an x-ray machine? Semantics, I realize. Um, but begs the question, where is this you're seeing this and what's leading you to say this? The other thing is everyone says, anytime I see a, a sentence that starts with everyone says, I, I kind of roll my eyes a little bit. Everyone says not to use sapwood. Who are this everyone? Because I know a lot of people who use sapwood and have no problems with that. Yes, sapwood is prone to bugs, as we just talked about with the emerald ash borer, because that's where the sugars are. That's what the bugs go after. Bugs don't eat wood because they're bored or, or that they want to carve, you know, an acanthus leaf. They eat wood because they're hungry. They need to survive. So if there are no sugars in the heartwood, they're not going to eat it. The sugar's in the sapwood, so they're going to go after it. But if you fell a tree and you're sawing a tree into boards and there's no evidence of boring insects in that sapwood, or more importantly, you saw that into boards and you kiln dry it and you heat treat it to kill off all those little buggers, there's no reason why you can't use the sapwood at that point. Using green sapwood is particularly risky because there could be bugs in it. Um, moreover, that green sapwood is still sugary and sweet and could attract bugs even after it's been sawn into boards. So you may saw it into boards and I don't see any um, evidence of bugs. So you st uh, stack and sticker it maybe in your basement or in your backyard. You might come back in a year and there's going to be bugs because that's like a siren call. It's a sugary, sweet smell bringing those bugs in to infest it. But once you kiln dry it, you're setting the sap. That's what heat treating is doing. It's raising the temperature up. First of all, killing any bugs that are in there, but it's also setting the sap, kind of caramelizing those sugars so they're not uh, attracting those bugs in the first place. Once it's kiln dried and been heat treated, you can feel free to use that sapwood. In fact, it's often a design element in a lot of furniture these days, especially contemporary furniture. The other thing he says is it seems that um, the, it's the heartwood that seems to be rotten and not the sapwood. Well, rotting wood and bugs are not necessarily the same thing. Rot is caused by water and fungus. Dry rot is caused by a certain type of fungus. I think there's like one or two specific um, fungi that are responsible for dry rot. But mostly it's a moisture issue. Now, certainly bugs and moisture can go hand in hand a lot of times. But again, the bugs are going after the sugars. So that's not technically rotting the wood. The wood is just being eaten. It's being bored into and weakened and kind of perforated from the inside out. Same thing with termites that they go after. It's another boring insect that's eating it. The wood is not technically rotting in that instance. Um, wood that is resistant to rot is essentially wood that's resistant to water because it has a high amount of oil and resin and oil and water doesn't mix, you know, um, that's what makes it more rot resistant. When you talk about a, a material that is good for ground contact, like black locust or green heart, the, the silica content and the oil content and the resin content in those woods is so high that it actually repels water. Which actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I should go back to the whole pressure treated thing that Jim asked about and say, there are differences between pressure treated because there's pressure treated for ground contact and not ground contact. So there is a difference there. Make sure you're buying, you know, if your application is for a post, make sure it's pressure treated for ground contact. Two different types of pressure treatment. Sorry, should have mentioned that back then, but I just thought of it now. So when you say that 
the heartwood seems to be rotten, but the sapwood is okay. Well, there are a lot of species of trees that they are very prone to, to falling over as they get older. Because as we know, this is now, I've mentioned this like three times in this episode, heartwood is dead. Heartwood is where all the waste is gone. That's the internal part of the tree that has, that has died. It's also, what do we know? It's denser and harder. And generally as things get harder, they get more brittle. Old growth hardwood trees, or not even just old growth, but just older hardwood trees are destined to fall over. Um, that's one of those things. And this is a broad sweeping general statement. This is not meant to be an environmental statement or something like that, but proper forestry management involves taking down a lot of those older trees, depending on the species. We're not talking about redwoods here, folks. We're not talking even about, you know, hemlocks and stuff. There are certain species that you do want to keep those 300, you know, year old trees. But a lot of the, the species of hardwoods, once they get to about 60 years old, they are a risk of falling over, falling on your house. Um, because the heartwood in the center of that tree has grown so big and essentially the structure, the skeletal structure, the bones of that tree are now very brittle. And what you've got holding it up is like this thin skin of, of softer, more pliable, more flexible sapwood. Well, as the sapwood gets thinner and the heartwood gets bigger, that tree is just going to fall over. In many instances, those really old hardwood trees, they will begin to rot from the inside out. Um, you'll often see as a tree is being felled, a lot of times it will actually break and separate from, from the base. Like you haven't cut all the way through and suddenly the tree jumps on you and it kind of snaps and like it comes off in the sleeve. So the stump you didn't actually cut all the way through the stump, but there's this like sharp shard sticking out of the middle where the heartwood is actually snapped like three, four, five, six feet further up into the trunk. And the tree is kind of unsleeved from that and leaving that, that sharp splinter sticking up. That's because that heartwood has started to rot because it's been dead for 40, 50, 60 years and it's now super weak. It's grown very brittle. It's grown drier and drier and drier over the decades that it has begun to dry rot, that it's become prone to fungal infection. But in just in general, there's a hell of a lot of dynamic stress on the base of that trunk on a very hard, brittle um, skeletal structure of the tree. So what you may be referring to is like when you see a tree felled and you see those holes, you see that kind of punky interior of the heartwood, that's what we're talking about. More than likely, as you go further up that log towards the top, you're going to see that rot, quote unquote, rot disappears. It's down at the base of the tree, which is the oldest part of the tree that has decayed and become the more brittle part. So it's important to differentiate the difference between rot and bugs, but also how that heartwood and how that sapwood differs. What keeps those trees up and swaying in the breeze instead of cracking and falling over in the breeze is that sheath of sapwood that is allowing the tree to be pliable and flexible. But again, over time, sapwood shrinks, heartwood grows, that tree becomes more rigid and it won't sway in the breeze anymore. And a stiff breeze comes along and blows it over. Um, which again, is why a properly managed forest has those old guys cut down. Like you need to go in and log that old stuff. It makes great lumber. It's highly valuable as lumber. But the, the upshot of leaving it is it will eventually fall over and it will become a deadfall, which becomes a fire hazard. Or it could take out a younger tree that has more life to lead. 
um, you got to thin out some of those old guys. Um, as I said, not all species apply to this. Please don't start writing me telling me I'm, I'm wanting to denude our forests of these wonderful grand specimens. But you know, when we're talking about most of, especially the domestic species in North America, they really don't grow that old. They're not sequoias, folks. They're not growing to be hundreds and thousands of years old. They grow to be 40, 50, 60 years old at most. And then they tend to fall over um, because they just, that's their lifespan. Moving on, um, this one should be fun. This is my last question, I'll close up this episode. This is from Matt on using the term full in your dimensions. Matt writes, most, my, bleh, my most local, my most local lumber supplier, I guess that means his closest lumber supplier, maybe it just means most lumber suppliers, I don't know. My local lumber supplier marks the ends of the boards in the rack. It'll list the width and the length. The width is always rounded down. So a board that is labeled 6F, meaning six full eight inches, may be six and three quarters by eight feet long. Sometimes the guy writing up the ticket will, char uh, will charge that as six inches by eight foot thickness. Um, excuse me, six inches by eight foot by the thickness. Um, sometimes another guy might write it up as 6.75 by eight by the thickness. What exactly does full mean in regards to width? Also, is rounding common in a situation like this? If you round down, the store loses. If you round up, the customer loses. So lastly, what if a board is tapered along its length or has a significant rounded edge due to being the edge of the tree? That's known as weighing, by the way. Um, not a live edge slab, but the same idea for more straight sawn lumber. So a couple of things going on in your question here, Matt. Um, the, the, use of the term, well, first of all, rounding down is, is extremely common. <clears throat> you don't want to round up um, because then the customer loses and really the, the customer is always right. So I do appreciate what you're saying that, you know, if you round down, the store loses. If you round up, the customer loses. Well, you got to choose the, the lesser of two evils there. I would rather the store lose than the customer lose because the customer is always right. Plus you need to round down because there will be shrinkage wood shrinks as it dries. Even if the wood has been kiln dried, um, maybe it's had time to swell back up and maybe that customer uh, buys the wood in Mississippi and then moves to Denver and that wood shrinks. Um, they're gonna say, well, wait a minute, you know, now I've lost. So wood is, is constantly moving and, and expanding and contracting. So it's better to go ahead and round down. And I like to look of an, uh, think of it in a different way, kind of lower the customer expectation. If the board is six and three quarter inches wide, we'll sell it to them as six inches. And then when they actually get it home and start sawing it, like, oh, I've got more to play with here. I'm happy, you know, my expectation was for six inches, but I'm pleasantly surprised that I'm able to mill this and end up with six and three eighths or six and a half. Um, so rounding down is, is extraordinarily common. Um, Wayne is a defect according to NHLA lumber. Um, and it is also, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Considered when you're rounding down. If you've got a board that is six and a half inches on one end, but due to weighing on the other end, it's only six and a quarter inches, you're gonna round down. Now you could round down specifically and say it's six and a quarter, but you're gonna round down to six inches. Generally rounding to the nearest whole number is going to account for things like weighing. Um, but if there's a significant amount of weighing in a board, that's a pretty big defect. You also can run into a pretty substantial amount of movement based on where that tree is, or excuse me, where that board is located in the tree. And a lot of that wane will probably end up getting cut off as a kiln defect 
once it comes out of the kiln. So a lot of times the wane is minimized. The wane that you do see in a board once it hits that lumber rack has already been minimized pretty significantly and that width or length or thickness um, that is listed on the end should take into account that wane and it has been rounded down. So what is the term full meaning? In your example, you're talking about say a four quarter by six by eight foot long board. Um, and they're saying it's, it's uh, six inches full. Well, that's because um, you are able to get a full six inches of width after that board has been milled. This is a term that's used specifically in rough sawn material. Um, a lot of times it can apply to width, it can apply to length, it can apply to thickness. You can say one inch full. Um, well, technically that's not four quarter. Technically that's five quarter. Um, because, you know, if you've got a four quarter board, even if it's a fat four quarter and it's like one and a 16th and one and an eight, you could be pushing it once you mill that board, once you joint it and plane it to get a full one inch thickness after it's been milled. Um, this is that whole, um, like that lawsuit that hit Lowe's a couple of years ago where, you know, a two by four is not actually two inches by four inches. You know, the nominal uh, dimensions of that is more like one and a half um, by uh, three and a half or one and three quarters by um, three and three quarters. Usually it's closer to a half than anything else. So now if you go to Lowe's or go to Home Depot, it'll say two by four and then parentheses below it will give you your actual dimensions. One by fours, one by sixes, all that. People were buying it thinking this is one inch thick and six inches wide, and they were shocked to find out that it was three quarter inches thick and five and a half inches wide. Um, and that really was misleading. This was kind of an insider thing. It was sold as a one by four or a one by six because it used to be one inch, uh, a full one inches thick by a full six inches wide. But once it was planed, or more importantly, once it was molded, into an S4S product, it's been reduced to three quarters by five and a half, um, three quarters by five and three quarters. Um, this goes way, 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 way back to, you know, framing lumber used to be rough sawn material. It wasn't planed. So a two by four was actually two inches by four inches. Now it was straight from the saw. It had a rough sawn texture. Usually it was a circular sawmill that did this. And if you, you can date a house's construction, if you tear the um, the sheetrock off, well, the sheetrock itself will date it a little bit, but you tear the, the board off and you find actually full two inch, um, actual two by four in there that'll tell you how old that house is. You'll also notice that that two by four is rough sawn in nature. And that's how all these boards were, were sold. You know, everybody went and planed it. Nobody was selling plain material. So it was sold as a two by four. It was sold as a four by four. Um, and, and that's, was the nomenclature. Once we started milling lumber into other dimensions um, for the home hobbyist, for the DIYer, for you know, more and more contractors came into the realm and the lumber yard started planing the material because the planer, frankly, is, is highly specialized material. Not a lot of contractors have a planer. You see it more so now because there are job site planers and things like this, but Back in the day, planers are these huge industrial machines that only a planing mill would have, only a lumber mill would have it. So the lumber started to get plain for more builders and things like that to use. But we were still using a four quarter board to start with and we plane and whatever came out the other end was usually three quarters of an inch or that two by four was planed down and you ended up with that, you know, uh, one and three quarter by um, uh, three and three quarter or whatever it is, what it comes out to. It gets thinner and thinner. Uh, which, by the way, when you use the term full, the opposite of that is scant. So you will often see like six scant. 
which means some of the board is six inches, some of it's a bit scant of six inches. So you're not gonna be able to get a full six inches once you mill it down. You have to be aware of that. Um, there's an instance where technically one is rounding up, but that's usually because of a very, very small area. So you mentioned Wayne before. I've got a board that will mill to six inches wide, but there's one foot at the end where the Wayne is a little bit wide and it falls like just inside of that. It doesn't you know, go very far. Maybe it's down to five and 15 sixteenths, but technically if I milled away that Wayne, I would be scant of six inches. Um, so technically I'm rounding up in that instance, but it's a very, very small area. And oftentimes you're gonna find scant like in the discount bin. Um, this was lumber that was meant to be six inches full, but somebody missed it during the grading process, or maybe somebody snuck in some scant material um, into the full, whether on purpose or not, and that board was graded out, and it's been thrown in the discount bin as six-inch scant. You will see that from time to time. So full basically means you're going to be able to mill it and still get the full whatever that dimension is, in your instance, six-inch full. Um, so in general, that board is going to average probably six and a half to six and three quarter inches wide, allowing you to straight line rip it, allow you to joint it, plane it, all that stuff, and still end up with a net dimension of six inches. The other thing where this happens is in specifications. Maybe an architect or a builder will, will specify, I want a full inch thickness for this molding. I want, you know, I want this, this bit of casement to be one by four. Well, one by four, as we know, could also mean three quarter by three and a half. Um, the architect may say, no, I want a full one by four casement on this molding. And this is actually becoming a lot more common. We'll see square edged casement molding that's much thicker. It's got kind of that beefier look to it. In that instance, it is an actual one inch thickness by four inches wide. So when we, the lumber yard or the, the millwork, does the takeoff on that plan and you see one by four molding, you may automatically think, okay, we can get away with a four quarter board here. But the architect is specifically, now a good millwork house is gonna call back and say, do you actually want one by four or do you want one by four, AKA three quarters by whatever. The architect is kind of heading that off at the pass and telling the, the millwork house, no, I want full one by four one inch full, four inch full casement molding here. And that's kind of the reverse engineered method of this. And it all comes down to that way back when, once we started milling studs, once we started milling framing lumber, and it was coming out thinner and narrower than that initial two by four, four by four, two by six, et cetera. We have come to, at least those that work with lumber long enough, have come to expect that that two by four is not gonna be an actual two inches thick. It used to be, but we're talking centuries ago that it used to be. These days, we all expect it to be a little bit thinner. So we will use that term full to say, no, we actually mean that it's this full thickness or that full width. The frustrating part here and the little rant that comes from this is some people misuse that term. Some people use the term too much. Um, in the end, if you're confused and you go to a lumberyard and you see 6F or whatever, or you see somebody who charges you for six and six and three quarters um, instead of six, ask them, hey, what is it about this board that makes you want to give me an actual dimension? You know, um, is more than likely, I've never actually seen anybody do that. I've only seen people really price to the whole number. I guess the only difference to that would be really, really exotic material, like really expensive material like ebony. Those, though, tend to be priced by the piece or by the pound, 
rather than by the board footage. Um, so there might be some reason. Cherry, I can't really see that happening. Um, although you didn't say cherry. Why am I thinking cherry? He didn't specify a, a species in his question, but um, there may be a reason why that particular lumberyard chose to price it to the quarter inch. Um, you know, in some instances, maybe it's a particularly wide board and it's unusual to see that kind of width. So every little fraction of an inch is worth some serious money. Um, I'd be willing to bet if it was priced to six and three quarters, it's probably wider than six and three quarters along most of that board. And you still could get a net six and three quarters. Um, if it were something like cherry, I could see that because cherry isn't all that common above eight inches. Um, actually, above six inches is not all that common. Some areas it might be. So they're calling it out. Hey, here is some extra wide cherry and we're going to price it accordingly. There's probably a reason for it. I would ask, you know, it's not out of line to ask, why didn't you round down on this? Why are you pricing this, you know, to the actual dimension rather than to the nearest whole number when you're talking about board footage? So great questions. Yet another instance where the lumber terminology and nomenclature and our own inventory system and board footage and all that fun stuff just ends up causing more confusion and frustration and people leaving a lumber yard feeling like they got screwed over because they don't quite understand how something was priced. So I will just say to you guys, if you're out buying lumber, call out your lumber dealer. It doesn't have to be a confrontational thing. Seek first to understand. Um, <laughs> you might run into an instance where the lumber yard doesn't know the answer to that. I wouldn't be terribly surprised because some of the stuff is just tradition. It goes back so many hundreds of years that they don't quite understand why they're doing it. But that also would be a nice red flag to tell you, maybe I don't want to shop at that lumber yard anymore. Most of the good lumbermen are going to know and they're going to say there is a reason why I'm pricing it this way and here's why. And if nothing else, you walked away just a little bit smarter and a little bit more capable of boring your family members at cocktail parties. That being said, folks, I will wrap up the show with that. Great questions, everybody. Thanks so much for sending in the questions. As always, if you have questions, go to lumberupdate.com. There's a contact form there you can fill out or just send me an email at lumberupdate at gmail.com. You can also reach out to me at lumberupdate on Instagram. Send me a direct message. I will take questions that way as well. Love getting your questions. Keep them coming, folks. In the meantime, go buy some lumber, some full-width lumber or full-thickness lumber. However, just go buy some lumber. <laughs>